Welcome back to another episode of the 100k Freelancer Club podcast. Today we have a very special guest, we've seen him before, awesome man, Nick Kudakirius, I hope I've said that name right, and as always, Niall, how are you doing today guys? Good thanks Jacob, um, I'm glad you didn't try and say my name because the mess you made of Nick's name there. <laughs> Good to see you Nick, Good to see you Jacob, hope you both Good work. Pleasure to be here guys, thanks for having me back a second time as well. Yeah, no, it's great to have you on and great feedback last time on the podcast. Obviously, we've done a lot of masterclasses together um, as well, teaching our freelance community all about pricing as a freelancer, which was a huge, uh, a huge success. So um, we're really glad to have you back on the podcast today. And today, what we're going to be talking about is the progression of a freelancer. Almost you could call it the life cycle of a freelancer. Where do you start out and where do you end up? And what about everything in between? So I wanted to dive in deep with you guys, with Niall and with you, Nick, about you know freelance marketplaces, about client acquisition, about working with clients and rates as your freelance journey progresses. Because you know, we, we, we've come across some stuff recently and we've been speaking with a number of freelancers about where they should go to get clients. And it's always different depending on their level of experience, how much stuff they've got on their portfolio. Um, and we're just going to dive in deep today. And hopefully as a freelancer listening to this podcast, you'll have a good understanding from this breakdown of what to do at what stage in your freelance career. So I'm just going to jump straight away in with a question and ask you, Nick, where did you start out on your freelance career? What was like the beginning drops of your freelance career? Going back in the past. Yeah, I, um, I came straight out of uni at 21. So I was fresh into the whole concept of freelancing in general and what is self-employment. So I was so new that I turned to what probably every teenager does or every 21 year old would do. I asked my best friend, Google. And I just typed in, where do you find jobs? Like film related jobs. I wasn't really looking for freelance or full-time or part-time. I didn't really know the concepts. I just wanted to work on set and start working on, on productions. So I started uh, just scouring the internet. I found a website called talentcircle.org, which probably doesn't exist now. This yeah, was like I say, I've never heard of it. Yeah, and dot, .org as well, it's an organization. So. I think that was 14 years ago. So I, I probably got to look it up after. Um, so I started looking there and I found some film gigs on set just to be uh, similar to Niall. I was doing kind of work as an extra inadvertently. I ah, really yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Um, I even applied for visual effects supervisor jobs, which is where you go on set and advise to how, how something should be shot to then put it together in post. I put an explosion behind someone. So I used to turn up on set doing that. And because it was such low budget projects, um, I got roped into being an extra. Oh, nice. <laughs> we like your look and we need to feel the numbers in the back. So just, you know, hop up back there and, you know, again, just started speaking to people and networking and I started getting gigs that way and then getting contact with people on set to refer me to other jobs. Ah, oh, nice. Because what you find with like, when you go to Google and you search for stuff nowadays, probably the first thing that's going to come up is freelance marketplace. Like you literally just type in the word freelance and you're going to get a Google ad from Upwork or freelancer.com or people for our Fiverr, stuff like that. And 
I mean, we were talking before this podcast and just outside of the podcast about what type of places they are and what to expect from it. So I think a lot of new freelancers get attracted and drawn to these platforms because there's, there's hundreds, if not thousands of companies every day posting jobs um, for freelancers to do. But, and this is what we hear a lot of the time is feedback from the freelancers on these platforms as well, is the jobs tend to be like really small or lower paid mm. jobs. They're not sort of the place you would go at the peak of your career. So like if you're a really advanced freelancer looking to push the boundaries or push it past 100K a year, I don't think you would step onto a platform like freelancer.com or like upwork.com. Like I think there's a specific purpose that they serve and I know these platforms won't like to admit it, but they're almost a stepping stone onto higher platforms. That's my opinion um, of Freelancer and Upwork. I think they're fantastic platforms and they give great opportunities to a lot of people to work there for years. But I don't know about you guys, um, but I don't see massive high paying opportunities on there. So I know, Niall, you did it, um, you've done like voice work and stuff like that on. Upwork. I mean, could you see yourself progress in your career on Upwork? Um, I think with what I do, it's a little bit different because it's quite unique. Um, working in sort of the, the TV, broadcasting, radio, football, sport, all of that sort of thing, those spheres, I think they're a little bit different um, when it comes to trying to get work as a, as a freelancer. A lot of it is done uh, through what Nick said, and that's networking. A lot of it's word of mouth. Some of the biggest clients I've picked up in recent years have been just purely through word of mouth and making friends with people. And um, I think that's something that's quite difficult to do on a website like Upwork or Freelancer.com. I think that you can kind of, that there can be a community generated there. But I mean, in terms of the actual interaction you have with other freelancers doing similar jobs, I would argue from my experiences on those websites, it's been quite limited. And I think that it's important what you said, um, Maybe it's difficult for them websites to admit uh, their role within the freelance community, but I don't think that devalues them at all. I think that they absolutely have a place and a value within the freelance world. And whether that's, you know, at the expense of them not being able to to come up with the massive high paying jobs, I think, like you say, they probably know that. But it doesn't mean that, you know, they're, they're not um, appreciated or valued. And I think you could make easily quite a quite a nice career, quite a, a well-off career from just working on Upwork and Freelancer.com. But it's the it's the stress that goes with that, and you know, yeah. it's, it's not an easy thing to manage. And what I've noticed is, like you said, I, I did some voiceover work on on Upwork.com during the pandemic, actually, when work in my sort of traditional field of work was was very thin on the ground for obvious reasons. People were locked down. There was no football. There was no sport, um, and it, it was tough. So I you know, look to Upwork.com and Freelancer and People Per Hour and these websites that you've name dropped there um, for some work. And I found some and I was lucky because I'm sure there were a lot of people in a similar situation. But um, I think that that served its purpose for me well then. Would I go back there now? In my particular line of work, probably not. But that's not to suggest that other people in other freelance fields couldn't find perfect job opportunities through it. I think that when you start out, you're right. When you start out, that is somewhere you naturally look to. Um you're exactly right. You know, Nick says about using Google when he was sort of fresh on the scene. Same with what you were saying. The first thing you probably see when you Google freelancers is is these websites. And mm. I think that that naturally sucks in those people who are just fresh into, into the game. So I think that there is a place for them. Whether 
they do offer those huge opportunities I don't think is for me to say because it's hard for me to kind of relate my experiences in my field of work to, to that but I imagine it's a toss-up between some business some businesses some fields of work there's probably loads of high paying jobs and others like for instance in mine that there's nothing there so I think it is like we yeah. always say for, on every podcast every freelance journey is unique and I think it's important to to, to caveat everything we say with that point actually that's that's a super important point because it, it kind of depends where you go right because uh, for example graphic design like if you look on upwork and you look for graphic design jobs all the companies that are posting they might even have ten dollar projects design one facebook ad ten dollars or you know five dollars an hour ten dollars an hour or something really low but then if you went over to dribble.com which is where like it's a platform for designers basically and you go to hire there $75 an hour, $100 an hour. Like you look at the two different places. If you looked on Upwork, you'd think graphic designers are the cheapest people in the world. You go to Dribble, you think, oh my God, they're the most expensive like people in the entire world. So it really just does depend like where you put yourself and where you position yourself. I mean, for you, Nick, as well, like where would you say as, as um, like somebody in, you know, the video side of things, whether it be video production or uh video editing like where would you recommend for them to go like what's the the, the space on the internet for like high paying areas for you guys yeah i mean kind of touching on what you're both saying and answering your question jacob they're essentially the key word there is they're a marketplace right so the client mm. and the customer need to fit that model of okay i'm a junior editor so i'm probably better suited to something maybe like fiverr.com or upwork or people per hour um, which also fit midway artists as well. But the more premium of an artist you are, and in turn, the premium of a client you're going to attract, you'd want to go to better and bigger platforms that hire those high caliber freelancers. Um, I think even before the call, Jacob was mentioning one where they only let 3% of the top freelancers into their platform. And, you know, I know we've spoken on this podcast before about, you know, Juno, they're one of the few platforms that really filter out and vet each client and each freelancer that signs up to them. So if you're on a platform like that, you only get kind of midweight to high caliber jobs on there. Yeah, so you wouldn't have low paying clients on there because they all have a benchmark. Totally agree. Uh, the word marketplace is the key, isn't it? You know, like you've got a lot of people selling. I mean, you go to a market, you go to you know, like Borough Market in London, you've got people, you've got 10 fruit and veg stands, but which one do you buy from? You know, you buy from the one that looks the exactly. best. You might have to pay more money. It's just, it's the, it's the key. It's, it's marketplace in its kind of most Spartan sort of embryonic form, just boiled down to freelancers <laughs> effectively. Um, and, you know, it's, it's nothing to be ashamed of, I think, to, when you start off. And, you know, everyone aspires to be that, you know, that premium freelancer, like Nick says. But, you know, you, ha you have to find a way, you have to navigate your way there. You don't just begin there. And I think that that's, that's something in which um a lot of people will come across during their freelance yeah, career. yeah i mean building upon one what you've just said there for the people that are currently employed looking to get into the freelance world you think it would be a wise move for them just to say let's just say they were a developer on a hundred grand a year but they have no freelance experience but obviously a ton of experience in their skill do you think it would be wise for them to drop their hourly rate so they would be making a bit less than that to build a freelance profile so to build reviews on upwork or to build reviews on you know juno temporarily 
um, like cut their rates temporarily to build that profile and get better clients in the future? Or do you think they should hold their guns and not go for anything lower than what they've previously earned? I would say definitely test the waters where that's lowering your rate to be more appealing. And as you rightly pointed out, those reviews are so key on those websites because you could be the most badass editor in the world, but if you've got zero stars on your profile, you're not really going to stand out. It's like an Amazon product. You kind of see yeah. past, past those products, right? So I think that's a really great idea to test the waters, see what it's like to even manage a freelance client as well. Like, What is it like to actually handle that relationship? How do you invoice? How do you manage all those ups and downs? Things that you wouldn't necessarily get in a full-time role. This is like a really good testing ground to experiment with that. So you might take a temporary hit on your wages, but you know, in the long term, that might actually help you transition from a full-time position into being a freelancer. Yeah. And, and one thing as well that I've um, recommended to people is if people have clients outside of these platforms, sometimes it's better, even if you get a commission here, say like, you know, Juno or Upwork take 10% of the money you get paid through there. Sometimes it's worth paying that 10% to get that review on your profile. If you've got a client that's coming in, they're going to pay you you know, five grand for a project or something, you can get a five-star review and five grand like credited to that account. So it's, you've seen to be earned, you know, 5K plus. You might lose 500 quid because of the fees that go to the platform, but it also could be tremendously valuable in the long run because now you've actually got a five-star review. You've actually got some footing on the platform to win those contracts because nothing is harder than bidding on freelance marketplaces when you've got nothing on your profile, no previous track record. Mm -hmm. Like why, why as an employer, would you, you know, you put out a post, Hey, I'm looking to hire um, a video editor for this 30 second reel and a hundred people bid on it. Why would you scroll to the bottom and go to the guy with zero reviews? Like you just would never do it. You know, Like, like exactly, we're just a man of a good heart, you know. I'm gonna give this guy a chance, give this guy a foot up in the world, yeah. (laughs) But yeah, exactly. So, it's good to like bring those clients um, across. And and what you were saying earlier about the what I was talking about before the podcast is a a place called Top Tal. And now, this is um, like staying on track of like the theme of the podcast, like the progression of your freelance career. Like, Top Tal seems to be the top of the top of freelance marketplaces. Like if you're on top tower, you're charging, you know, a hundred dollars an hour plus for your services. So you're making like, you know, possibly one to two grand a day, um, like for your services. So it is very, um, very highly paid. And, and they actually, you know, they vet their clients. So they have clients like, you know, Nike, Adidas, Apple, like all the big guys that you couldn't just be a random company with, you know, a very small budget in, go on this platform and look for cheap freelancers. It's just not there. So you don't get, you know, the time wasters. And at the same time, there's a very detailed like application process as a freelancer. So this is why I think is at the end of sort of the life cycle of um, like a freelancer is because you need a portfolio to get on there. You need a proven track record. Like you said, they only allow the top 3% of freelancers in there. So and I went through, or like I'm currently in this process, um, there is, I, I think it's, it's five steps, right? So you have like, um, step one is just a normal application, like with a cover letter, a CV, information about yourself. 
if you get accepted through that, then you go on to um, it's like the second stage, which is like uh, an it's an English proficiency interview and then an interview. Like I obviously with the English proficiency one, it was like one second. They're like, yes, you <laughs> you know English. I was like, Oof. I was worried about that one because I've been hanging around with non-natives for so <laughs> long. I've been my, you, worried my, yeah, yeah. <laughs> didn't get the job. My English isn't good enough. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. And then, the, and then the, the, the part after that is like a, like a job interview. Right. So that it's just some person asking you about your skills. They're picking out because you can't just on this platform, you can't just apply. Uh, you can't just go like, just, you can't just join the platform. You have to apply as something. So you have to specifically apply as just say like a backend developer in PHP, for example. Whereas on Upwork and Freelancer, like you could just join Upwork. I don't know if it's the same with Junior, but you can just join and, you know, you could do a bit of bidding on some graphic design projects. You could do a bit of bidding on some, web development projects and video editing projects. Like you can bid on anything you want. You could just change your portfolio to depending on what you're bidding on. But on this, it's like very specific. So, and you cannot change that ever. Um, so you, you go through here and then you have this really specific interview where they dig into your CV, they dig into your portfolio. And then once you pass that test, then you have an exam in your field. It's a 25 question exam. You have 25 minutes to do it. And then you have to go through, you have to get, I, I don't know what the pass grade is, um, but then you have to pass that. And then after that, you have another interview, which is like a dummy mock interview. It would be like with TopTal and a company. Um, so they take you through like an interview with like Nike, for example, and see your performance there. And then after that, the final stage is you have to do a test. So like, let's just say you're like a, a Swift developer. They will give you something like a test project that we get, okay, build this in five hours and then you have to like build it and depending on how good it is is whether you finally get accepted into top tower or not but like once you're in there they really look after you like they go they find the clients for you essentially you just say what you want to work in and they find the clients for you and they deal with all of the money side the payments chasing all of that sort of stuff but that you could not join unless you were like very experienced in an employment job. So for example, Niall could probably go there if they, they don't offer it, but if they did offer like football broadcasting, <laughs> Niall could definitely jump from his job having, you know, worked with Manchester United and the likes of some great football teams and having a great portfolio behind him and the evidence and the skill set. he could go into that. But you can't just leave university or just have a couple of years in the field um, and, and join a platform like this. So that is sort of the, end of the road or yeah. like the, the the place you should be aiming for if you're going down the freelance um freelance market route you wanted to jump in there no yeah i just think it's interesting you know like what you were saying about scrolling past all of the zero star reviews and not even giving them a thought i mean it's the snowball effect isn't it right you know it's, it's the snowball has to start somewhere and you know packing the ice together until it gets bigger and then you roll it down the hill and then all of the work takes care of itself the hardest yeah. bit of that is the building of the initial snowball and then you push it down and then you hope that it takes off. I mean, that's the reason why it's called the snowball effect. What I was interested and I'm, I'm curious to find out is from Nick's perspective, when he felt like he made that transition from intermediate level freelancer to, okay, now I'm, I'm making the step into 
the professional uh, element of it, you know, in terms of being a, a high earning and top top ranging freelancer. Was there a particular client, Nick? And you don't have to to drop names here, but any any one moment in particular where you can look back on now, a few years down the line, and say, well, that was the moment where the snowball began to gather momentum. Sort of like where you let go of the snowboard, yes. <laughs> and I built my snowman. <laughs> yeah. It's um, it's quite difficult to say one specific moment, but there's definitely, I think you get a lot of confidence and reassurance from external sources. When, when you have a lot of clients saying, look, I'll, I want to book you in, I want to book you in regularly. And then you have other clients kind of fighting over your availability. I think there was one time in my career, it was about seven years in, so it was no way near the beginning, it was when I had so many clients built up that I had a talent agent representing me. I, I was paying for about three to four different job board websites, which is similar to what Jacob's describing, which sounds like a hybrid of talent agent and a jobs board. And I had so many just sources of in, inbound and outbound marketing and ways to get jobs that I thought, I'm in such demands now. I need to one, raise my rates because everyone's obviously, you know, I'm in their demand. And two, I feel like I need to look at higher quality jobs as well, because, you know, if I've got five different projects to choose from in the next two weeks, you kind of start changing the perspective shift of, okay, I'm not going to say yes to every single one and just become a yes man and say yes to every project. Mm. I want to be the one choosing like the creme de la creme. So I want to choose the projects that are really going to be amazing for my portfolio. They're meaningful. I love working with particular clients. I believe in the brand. You know, I started filtering out like it's, it's a bit geeky. This actually became a product now uh, called the Client Tracker, but I started a spreadsheet and on my lunch breaks, I used to kind of rate um, how much I like the client based on the types of projects they would give me, um, you know, what what the environment was, the team I was working with, how great the, the people were and the talent and did it, how did much Did ethics ever come into that, Nick, in terms of like your morals and, and what your values oh, yeah. are as a person? Would that have been factored into it when you were choosing? 100%. Client? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a really good question now because, you know, I think in the beginning you say yes to every project mm. because, you know, anyone just wanting to work with you is like a godsend. But as I got kind of older in my freelance career, I started asking, you know, before I say yes to this project, like what's the brand? Like, is it something that I don't believe in? Is it something that is something I'm not too fond of? And what's great is, you know, a lot of these job platforms now, they say what the brand is about. And I think some uh, platforms have a policy where they have to say, is it a tobacco brand? Is it an alcohol brand? Is it something, you know, that might be seen as something that they don't necessarily want to support? Uh, so that, yes, is a massive factor. If it's something I don't believe in or I don't want to, promote then i don't really want to put my name or stamp on that so when you were going back vice versa the seven years looking back at that moment where you you had basically clients coming out of your ears um was was there a period where they were coming to you and saying we want to book you because of this piece of work we've seen or because of was there was there um a swing in terms of it was more recommendations from other people in other businesses that recommended your services or was Mm. it um, a, a swing towards something they've seen that you you've put on a on a marketing a web a marketing outbound marketing so like a, an advert or something you've put on a job board was there ever a like a, a weighted percentage between there was this many people that were coming to me because of this and this many people that were coming to me because of other factors or was it a bit of a mixed bag? I think it was a bit of a mixed bag to be honest because right. I I didn't have a massive way at least back then of measuring 
you know, where my sources came from. So mm. I guess, you know, Jacob probably comment on this from a marketing background. You kind of want to know if I'm spending this much on marketing, is it coming from Facebook? Am I getting sales from Google? Is it SEO? Is it word of mouth? Um, I mean, that client tracker that I built, it was kind of a real mixed bag, to be honest. It was where I was getting probably most of my clients from referrals. I'd say a good 70% was from word of mouth and from existing clients. Um, and the rest would be just kind of marketplace websites and talent agents. So those bits of combinations that propelled massively when I think my showreel just got stronger and I just got mm. certain clients that really turned some heads. So if I'd done a, a huge campaign for Adidas and I'd put that on social media, then some of those clients on say my LinkedIn page would then message me and say, oh, cool. I saw this work. Are you available for Friday? And then it kind of, that's the snowball there. I think it's just about getting people's attention and really kind of showing people that you are on the ball and you are growing and you're constantly working on new exciting projects. Love that point. And I suppose you're the person to ask with this, Jacob, and it's, you know, I've got a real um, bad habit, a bad freelancer habit of when I've done work and I've tried to, I've tried to make it, um, I've tried to alleviate the habit a little bit in recent weeks. I've got this habit of just being in in sort of in the work involved in the work that I forget to take a photo of the football match I'm working at or the 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 other presenters that I'm working with and so I look back after a week's busy work I think well it's amazing I've done five games this week and I've been to this stadium I've been up and down the country doing all these brilliant things and and then I've got no record of that apart from the work I've done of course which is great because you've got the video of it and stuff but in terms of like building a profile on social media that's something I'm particularly weak at and I think it's important as a freelancer to identify your strengths and weaknesses so in terms of like what Nick says when you've done a work uh, done some work you know slapping it on LinkedIn saying here's what I've done how regularly should someone be doing that in the freelance world, do you think? Because I'm looking for some advice here myself, personally, JB, just to know, you know, how regularly should I be posting on LinkedIn and saying this is a great thing I've done? Because, you know, I, I work most games every weekend and a lot of the time they're quite similar. So, I mean, are people going to get a bit fed up with me going, well, here I am again, doing the same mm. thing again and again and again, three, four times a week. So is there a, I know it's hard to pick a pick a formula out, but is there a, a method or a, a mode of attack that people should go about that, do you think, mate? Yeah, well, it's funny you say that because I've been working on that a lot recently. Um, and, and it's basically because I had the same thought as you. Like, I've been working on stuff for ages and I was having a bit of a reboot of my um, portfolio, like a redesign of my portfolio ad and stuff. And I've thought about all of the amazing stuff I've done and then kind of kicking myself about opportunities that I've like sort of missed of recording it. Like I didn't record any of the event or any of what happened here. And um, in my field as well, specifically on like a digital marketing perspective, like if you're working with a client, let's just say it's like a six month time period, they come into your marketing account. It's like, you know, you're managing their marketing account and you can see how much they spend with you. So like I've managed millions of dollars um, worth of like advertisement spend but if you go into my um, if you go into my ad accounts now, because I've done project based work with those clients, I've worked with them for six months. So they come in, stay for six months, then leave, go on to the next project. You'll only see about a million dollars spend in my ad account. So if I go to somebody now, and it, I always talk when I'm in interviews um, to pick up clients and stuff like that, and I'm talking about yeah, I have some millions of dollars here. If they ask me to follow up on that, I can only show them account with like one million dollar track record in it because it doesn't prove that so then i started looking into doing 
exactly what you've done there in just posting on LinkedIn about my successes. And it's not specifically LinkedIn that I'm saying like that you post on. Um, it's just you find somewhere to post things and post regularly because you're always going to forget. So it's just to do it in the moment. So recently I won um, like a Dragon's Den style competition uh, for investment for one of um, like a, a startup that I co-founded. And I just immediately, the first thing I did was just posted that to LinkedIn, just like copy and pasted it, tagged the people, posted it to LinkedIn. You can also tag like an event on your like um, LinkedIn, like you were doing this, this time. So for example, Nick could come on and post, I was guest speaker at hundred K freelancer and put that on like his work experience. And it comes up there. And I would say there's, there's no time frequency. I'm not, you know, you shouldn't post once a week or force yourself to post once every two days just for the sake of doing it. It's just every time that you do something, you should just get into the habit of posting it, post the progress and post the result. And then in your case where like you might do the same thing day in, day out. So you might at the beginning of like, you know, when you started, um, like on a new type of job. So commentating on football games, you might be posting every week. Now social media following attraction, like if you're trying to grow your like Instagram, stuff like that, this doesn't, this, what I'm about to say doesn't apply to that, but to like LinkedIn and building your portfolio, you can post about the interesting stuff and like when you do it, but if you do this, the same thing week in, week out, just sort of post the highlights. If it was a really good game or like if you felt like you did outstanding commentary in that one and post snippets of that one to LinkedIn. And then every time you change stuff up or like you applied a new skill or you did anything, you can like post about it. And then you can have like your support network or like your support platform of say Instagram for you where you can post and then instead of posting in the forms of like stories where they're 24 hours, just try and make a quick clip collection of a reel of that day. So your match, for example, you could just reel that up. Then it's on there forever. And then that's such a quick form way of potential employers looking at your content. So if I'm from, say, you know, Leicester City and I'm looking at Higher and Nile, I've got his Instagram. I just jumped to there and I've got reels of you commentating on like some fantastic goals. You could even clip and highlight it like your commentary moments of the month whack that into a reel and then you've got that real quick information because that's what people want they want the best stuff like it's like if you were to make a resume you know you're not going to put all of the nitty-gritty stuff you did on that you put on the you know the accolades the achievements so that's what you should be creating as you go along so you're not in that moment where you know, Barcelona FC approach you tomorrow and you're like scrambling to get all your stuff together for like the 9am interview, you know, like it's just those small increments, uh, those not increments, but those small things that you do to help progressively move along. And then you've always got like your portfolio as your weapon. I think you know, that, it's like always there ready to go. That's a good point as well. And I know I'm conscious that we are running a slightly short on time here, but um, how often do you update your portfolio then, Nick? So, I mean, for, for us being creatives, I mean, I have a, a show reel of sort of me presenting, commentating, doing the things I do, and I'm sure you do as well for all of your videography work. So, you know, mm. when do you make a decision that client X, the new client that's come in, is going to knock off a piece of work that you're really proud of that you did maybe three or four years ago? How fresh is it? How often are you updating mm. it? Do you have a, a formula for that? Yeah, I mean, I'm happy to admit I'm not the best with social media posting. But I'm definitely in the same boat as you trying to get more on top of when to post when there's fresh work out there. 
Mm. Um, but now I'm, I've developed this kind of a system similar to like Trello boards, if you're familiar with that kind of Scrum or Agile um, format, where whenever I do a project, I kind of go from the invoicing stage or the acquisition stage, and I take it all the way through these boards where it gets to the stage of, okay, need to promote. And on that need to promote section, once it's built up to about five or six projects, I'll update my main showreel with those projects in there. So I update my personal showreel uh, one to two times a year. I was actually doing it this morning, even though we're in April now, <laughs> so a little bit behind. But I would definitely recommend for people to just do it, not really as a set rule, but whenever you feel like there's substantial work gone in there that you really want to showcase, if it's four or five new projects, four or five new voiceover reels, whatever it may be, into your main reel, then you can justify that as a brand new show reel. That's a good point. Now, it's really useful to hear that sort of information. And obviously for us being sort of in that creative field, um, you know, there's there's obviously thoughts to be had on that. But I guess from your perspective, JB, your sort of portfolio will look slightly different. Um, is mm. it something you can just keep adding to sort of like a wall, building it up and up and up? Or is it something that you have similar thoughts on where, okay, we're going to slice that bottom bit off and put something new on the top? Yeah, it's more like I just keep my top three things on that. Like, just saying the web development perspective, if I'm going like my web development portfolio, like I can build, you know, the same websites day in, day out. It doesn't matter, you know, what I've done, you know, if it was last week or last year. But then when I build like an extra special project, you know, like we went the extra mile, there was more features. We worked with a bigger team, like it was new technology that's been implemented. Then that makes it to the top of the portfolio. Then, then that sort of goes in there. Um, from that standpoint because it's like you say like people time is the most important thing nowadays when employers are looking at your portfolio or looking at your cv resume whatever they will take seconds to look at it they will only glance at it and you have just a few seconds to capture that attention so you need to keep it sharp and concise and just easily you know demonstrate your value with those few key bullet points of projects that you've worked on or like the things that you've achieved yeah, no, it sounds good. And you know what? It's been really interesting to get different perspectives. And I think that that's the important thing. You know, we're all freelancers, but we're all freelancers in different fields. And, you know, putting your brains together and coming up with different ideas is always is always a benefit, I find. I don't know if you found that, Nick, you know, along your journey, it's just speaking to different people and learning things because, you know, it's the old cliche, you learn something new every day, but it's, it's true. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I love that quote. Um, it's our differences that help us grow but our similarities that help us relate right and it's that whole thing of like we are all freelancers we've got similar ambitions and goals right but we're in just different fields trying to achieve that so it's so good talking to you guys and getting different uh, perspectives on these same things and challenges that we face as freelancers um so i'm always learning from you guys you know i'm a big fan of the podcast listening to it this morning at the gym as well so it's one of those things where I think everyone is at different stages of their freelance journey. And even at the later stages, I work with people that are quite senior, people that have done it for like 20, 30 years. And I'm, I still hear them struggling with things like chasing money from clients or, you know, when's mm. my next gig coming in? Mm. And on one hand, it, it kind of normalizes things a bit more that we all face the same struggles. And on the other hand, it's like, we're all learning, you know, this, that's why platforms like this are so important to just discuss these things and have have a community essentially to just help us all go on that same journey. Yeah, exactly. And on that note, I'll jump in and promote what we have to you to help you on that journey. So 
us 100k freelancer club and nick at nk courses uh we have a joint bundle which includes two master classes in two tools um which nick will jump in now and tell you about yeah sure so we have a pricing bundle which is awesome i'm quite proud of this because myself and the 100k freelance club done this collaboration to talk all about pricing which is one of the biggest taboo subjects and one of the most asked things that we both get dm'd every day on how much to charge as a freelancer and we also cover all the different processes of the five different pricing models you can do um, when you're pitching for your projects and pricing yourself and we also have a generalizing versus specializing masterclass um, which you absolutely have to check out if you are someone who struggles with knowing when should i niche down and when should i appeal to the wider market Awesome. And you can head over to, uh, what's the web address for that one? We might have to put it in the show notes. <laughs> Check the description, guys. We'll put, <laughs> yeah, we'll put that in the show notes. But yeah, you can head over to 100kfreelanceclub.com and nkcourses.co.uk um, and you can get that content there. And uh, thanks again for listening to this episode of the 100k Freelancer Club podcast. Thanks again for coming on, Nick. You've been an amazing guest and we love your experiences. Thanks and so much, uh, we guys. will catch you guys in the next one. Thanks, guys. See you later.